Hello and welcome to The Film File, the film show for film geeks, by film geeks. And this is episode 42. This, this is the episode where we have the ultimate answer to the ultimate question of life, the universe and everything. Clearly, when we say that we're, we've got the answer to life, the universe and everything, we mean life, the universe and everything to do with films. <laughs> Ah, just leave it at life, the universe, and everything. Let people figure it out. <laughs> well, films are the answer, let's be honest. Let them figure it out. <laughs> so, in this week's episode, we'll be bringing you a review of probably the most talked about film of the week, which is Pixie. No, it's Borat 2, but we'll also be reviewing Pixie. Andy will be delving into his missed classics, and we'll be talking about Robert Redford's 1994 uh, film drama, quiz show but in the meantime how have you been andy meekin I, I, i've been andy meekin how have i been andy meekin is another matter all, all entirely i mean that's philosophy there it we is. can't really get into that here see what it is uh, let us down a completely what... different avenue <laughs> this is why words matter folks <laughs> um yeah it's it's been just another typical week really we're on the half term and we're in tier three in Sheffield. So, yes. yay. That this time of year during the half term is normally a time that I get to see, you know, my mum normally pops over and comes to see me uh, and the kids and my wife and also my sister who lives nearby. But sadly, this year, we've not seen her since January. Do you know why? Tears of a clown. And that's my political statement for this week. <laughs> I see what you did there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's a funny old world again. Uh, just when you thought the world was getting back to normal, it's suddenly a funny old world again. And when I say get back to normal, I mean get back to at least the some summer, kind of some kind yeah. of normalcy. Yeah, my my big disappointing news: we were supposed to be playing a huge uh, Halloween festival with my uh, Alice Cooper tribute band next Saturday, which will be the, the, the 31st. And um, very disappointingly, uh, and not surprisingly, being cancelled. But it's still, it still hurts. It's still gutting. Um, totally understand why the promoters yeah. pulled the show. But it's still so disappointing. And uh, even though it's been, it's been rescheduled till next year, along with other shows, I don't think at this point we're going to get any more gigs in this year, which is, which is really sad. And, I, I don't know about you. When all the good things that are laid out in front of you get sort of get pulled away, I'm starting to get hardened to it now. But it, there's still that sense of disappointment, and that's the same yeah. with, which I'm sure you'll talk about in the news. Some of the uh, release dates for for movies we've been looking forward to. Yeah. In addition, this week, work wise, trying to get people to understand that in tier three cinemas are still open, is one of the struggles that we've got. We're, we've been getting lots of people phoning like, oh, are you, are you closed? It's like, well, we wouldn't be answering the phone if we're closed. But no, we are open. We've got loads of films on, but there's so many people who think that because pubs and everywhere is shut down, obviously we must be. No, because if we had to shut down, the government would have to pay some money towards the cinema industry in order to bail us out. And they're not going to do that, are they? So the answer to that, good people, is support your cinemas. There are plenty of smaller chains and independents that are still running. They are not locked down. Uh, and just With a to huge range of films as well. I mean, we've got 21 different films this week. 21 films in nine screens. That's amazing. And you know what? It's, I had this conversation yesterday with, uh, with who I like to call my man in the know, who, who gives me the insider knowledge. And he said, you know, that it's, it's interesting that a lot, of, a lot of cinema chains now are becoming the equivalent of, of indie cinema. Are showing films yeah. that they 
never normally uh, uh, get a chance to show because the big distributors would keep them out of those those particular theatres uh, and, and offering a, a a range and variety that most most audiences wouldn't go for so you know the upswing is is we are getting a chance to see films that that otherwise would be uh, relegated to yeah you know, I'll wait till it comes out and then maybe I'll watch it. Out of those 21 films, only one film is an older film, and that's Akira. Yeah, which we'll kind of prove when we talk about Pixie uh, later, because I don't think in a normal world we would have had a chance to see it because we would have been reviewing blockbusters. Yeah. But at this stage in the programme, we do what we always do. We let Andy Meakin, a kind of virtual Sherlock Holmes, delve into the World Wide Web and find us and pick out the best of the film news. Andy, what have you got in this segment we call The News? So you said virtual Sherlock Holmes, so let's just start the news with them segueing straight into... I, I, uh, you know what? I, I couldn't have written <laughs> that. <laughs> the the, the new, new delays and the films on hold. Uh, Dexter Fletcher has been in interviews recently and he's been confirming that Sherlock Holmes 3, which is the follow-up to Guy Ritchie's pair of films which had Robert Downey Jr. and Jude Law, has been put on indefinite hold for the time being. Oh, that's uh, he was put behind the lens. He's he's worked with Richie a good few times in the past, particularly early on yeah. during yeah as an actor. And Richie's kind of supported him in his rise to being a director. So it was a nice handover to go. Oh well, he's passing over his franchise to Dex Fletcher. Yeah, we get that, but we're going to have to wait a bit longer. And also, he was linked to the Saint, which we talked about a few weeks ago. Yep, and that's been put on hold as well. Basically, it's because of the coronavirus uncertainty. They don't know when they can ramp up production on a, on a lot of things. And the complications in getting large groups together for productions means you can't do as many. Th- it used to be a case that an actor would finish filming. This big release gets finished finish shooting there. They jump straight onto their next project, then go back to the first project for reshoots and pickups, and then goes back for reshoots and pickups on the next one. And then a constant trail. Someone like Robert Downey Jr. will be constantly working. Now, because of all the isolation rules and you have to stick together, they can't do that bouncing backwards and forwards so easily. And Robert Downey Jr., with, along with his wife, are producing this. But have you heard some of the plans that they've got about making it a a Sherlock Holmes shared universe? Whatever that means, I'm not sure. But does that, for you, conjure up you know, Dracula, for instance, and, and being in, in that world? It's kind of an interesting bet. I'm not quite sure where they're going with it. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting... Th- idea but i don't really know if i want them to i mean the only part of a shared universe for anything to do with sherlock holmes that i'm i've kind of got a love for is enola holmes which i thoroughly enjoyed on your recommendation by the way which i would love to see a spin-off from that to focus on sherlock yeah uh, played marvelously by henry cavill who gave a different type kind of take for it. I, I don't want it to be a shared universe where it's throwing in like random characters and monsters, but you know what? I'm open to ideas. And it's, it's Robert Downey Jr. And you know, always know that uh, he's, he's, he's going to bring his A game to it. He even did that in Doolittle, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> as, long as, as long as he's not using Doolittle as a tie-in, I don't mind. So, I mean, uh, Robert Downey Jr. is quoted at this point, we reveal there's not a mystery verse built out there. But Conan Doyle is definitely a voice in that arena to this day. So to me, why do a third film if you're not going to be able to spin off into some real gems of diversity? So yeah. interesting. I'd like to see where they go. It does spring to mind League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, 
for instance. Yeah, which uh, didn't really get a very good outing on film, but the, the comic book series film, that's was absolutely brilliant. On further delay news, we've still not got to 2021 yet, and already films from that year are moving. Ghostbusters has now shunted to June the 11th, 2021, which is three months later than it was originally planned. Well, I say originally planned, it's like 18 months later than it was originally planned. Candyman is now August the 27th, 2021. Still think they should have released it in time for Halloween. Yeah, and Don't Breathe 2 will also be landing in August 2021. Which the way of the world at the moment, none of us will be. Yeah. Uh, John Stankey, the CEO of AT&T, who own Warner Brothers, isn't optimistic about the future of cinemas. Oh. Nice. His quote, because we like getting these quotes from people within the industry to see who supports us and who doesn't. His quote is, that's still one of the things we don't have great visibility on. I can't tell you that we walked away from the tennis experience saying it was a home run. We are expecting for this to be an incredibly choppy moving into next year. We are not optimistic, not expecting a recovery into next year. As we move forward and see, we will call the cards. Yeah, I, You know what? Despite it being very pessimistic, I actually kind of admire his honesty because at least... Yeah. Somebody's holding their head up and saying, we can't definitely say. Same with the music yeah. industry. You know, people are saying next year is going to be fine. But then again, you can't really say. So I'd rather know now than rather put all my eggs into one basket and go, yeah, it's going to be great. Because yeah. I did that at the beginning of the year thinking this time of year was going to be great. Yeah, I mean, I've been asked a few times, either at work or by, by friends, you know, oh, uh, when do you think? such and such a film is going to come out then. Oh, do you think, it, think it'll all be fine by next February? And I've just got to the stage of like, you know what? Next week, everything could change. So I'm not even going to answer it anymore. Yeah. You can't because, you know, we, we got optimistic and hopeful that by this point in time, we'd be looking forward. I mean, Bond would have been here by now. Sure. Yeah, we, we were looking forward to all the big releases coming out and we've got nothing for the next two months. So, you know what? It, yeah, it's very pessimistic. But like you say, at least he's honest about it. At least he's not. At least it's not the platitudes that we got from the other person for Warners last week. Sure. Which was, oh, we always love you. We always support cinema. Uh, we'll be here once you, once you finish. Oh, would you? Would you? With a Band-Aid ready to put it on our broken bones. Anyway, okay, for, for one little rant to something which always gets me on a rant. Okay, I'm going to guess. I'm going to take, uh, take my uh, mystic balls out both of them <laughs> and look to the future of this conversation and think it's going to be one of two things one of my mystic balls says Zack snyder and the other mystic ball says disney mm. <laughs> andy put me out of my misery so you know that in the can totally finished done movie that was being split into four parts for hbo max uh, Zack snyder we're we talking about now Just we are me. indeed <laughs> okay well I don't know whether you caught these bits of news this week, but it was so finished and in the can and ready to be released that now Jared Leto is coming back to film scenes for the film that he was never a part of in the first place. <laughs> yes, I read that. And uh, <laughs> and you know what? I read it and I thought of you. <laughs> and in addition, Joe Manganiello will be turning up as Deathstroke. Now, you might remember him being in the original film in a post-credit moment. That's right. So he literally wasn't part of any of the story. He was a tease for what's to come. And yet, he's he's now being cast to come and do his filming for his moments in this completely finished, in the can, ready to be released. It's done. It's done that we got told about for two years. But Andy, I saw the pictures of finished film cans. Oh, yeah, I saw that picture as well. I, it, I don't think that Zach would have lied to us. It must have been ready, yeah? It must have been. Uh, you know, just quickly, I'm, I'm, we were talking about this off, off air. Despite everything that's gone off with this, and you know, I, if, if Zack Snyder can have his moment on this, best of luck to him. I 
wasn't overly impressed, as I've said many times, with his take on the DC universe. I think it held it back more than moved it forward. But and we were saying what um, what a raw deal Joss Whedon's got out of this, and he must must be one of the reasons that he's retreated back into television. Now, what most people, especially if you're a, a Zack Snyder fan, and I don't share completely your 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 feelings on it. I think you know. Um, if, you, if that's what you enjoy, that's what you enjoy. But I think Joss Whedon got a, got a very raw deal. He was brought into a film that was clearly only halfway through production to then be told by the producers, make this work. Uh, clearly, your work on the Avengers can prove that you can do a, a superhero team movie. Uh, and he was faced with producers having their all telling him what kind of film they wanted, as well as a cast who yep. were probably wondering why they were thought they were coming back for reshoots and then we had to shoot reshoot an entire movie i think he got a raw deal and out of this i know he's had uh some bad press on on twitter due to some of the cast i think he, he he's really uh, um i think he's really been castigated over this film and, and so much so that he's, he's made his move back into tv where as a showrunner he's got more power and more strength and where from what i'm hearing about his new project is, is he's back in familiar territory yeah, completely agree. I mean, uh, you, you get the reports of how he snapped on set, and he was uh, he was nasty. You clearly, and never harsh. worked with me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I, I, we commented off air that we all have that time. We, no matter how nice we are in general, no matter how much we respect the team that we work with, every now and then the pressure of work gets on top of you. And if you're getting pressure from above and from below with a cast and crew who hadn't worked with him. And were so dedicated to Zack Snyder that they were, you know, why are we refilming this? Why are we doing this? Why are we doing that? And giving him flack back. And he just wanted it to, he, he had the pressure, you've got to get this done in the next two months. Yeah. Yeah, he snapped. We've all done it. We've all snapped and then walked away afterwards and gone, oh, I took that out on the wrong person. So, yes, he, he was a different person than what uh, Alan Tudyk, for example, who was very vocal on that's not the guy that I know, uh, who he's worked with multiple times. You know, he was a very different person because he was put in such a pressure situation and it, it broke him. But anyway, I mean, let's just let's just pay attention to the fact that this has now got around 80 million added to it so far. So we can't let's consider just this for this moment that we still can't get money for a sequel to Dread. But 80 million can be spaffed up the wall for a film that was clearly never finished. Talking of never finished, it reminds me of a certain government with their oven ready deal. But that's my second politics for today. Politics. Moving on. <laughs> Soapbox out, politics gone. So, Creed 3. Yeah, now, I saw this uh, this morning. It appears that Michael B. Jordan is returning to the role in Creed 3, not only as star, but possibly as director. And this kind of echoes what happened with Stallone, who took over the helming of the Rocky series, basically directing himself in the rise to it. There's no confirmation being made at this point in time on this news. It's still speculation, isn't it? But this buzz actually started last year because didn't Erwin Winkler suggest that he was going to get handed the director's chair, uh, that Michael B. Jordan would be handed the chair sometime last year? So getting it rising up again, that it might be close to signing a deal. Yeah, it makes it feel like it's going to happen. And it kind of makes sense. I mean, th this is a, a hot young actor who's really on a rise. And he's shown interest in getting behind the camera quite a few times. I, I'm all for it. I, I think he's a fantastic actor. He's had the ability to work with, you know, some fantastic directors, of course. If that's where his career's going, he seems to be the right choice to 
to do as you said, what Stallone does, echo that and, and take over this production. I got a bit of news. Uh, Simon Kinberg is to write and produce the Battlestar Galactica film, which has been oh, yeah, I saw this. many times. This is a project that's been talked about for at least the past decade in some shape and form, even whilst the rebooted TV series were running. There was talk of a movie series that wouldn't be the same as that. It'd be a different interpretation of Galactica. Yeah, from what I gather, I mean, this is when uh, Brian Singer was involved and he was involved for a long time on trying to trying to get this going they wanted to do basically the 1970s version you know the brainchild of glenn a larson um and of course uh ronald d moore took the series and almost a almost a reflection on 9-11 post 9-11 america didn't it yeah i mean the series reboot did a great job of making it grittier darker and very political as well as adding in various religious aspects that People who didn't pay attention were quite upset when it got to the ending and it turned out religion was the huge factor. Yeah. Um, but if you paid attention, it, it really paid off beautifully. I, I, I'm excited for the Battlestar Galactic reboot. I think that there's so much potential to do so many different things within that. In the same way that Star Wars has so much potential to tell different stories within that galaxy, Galactica can do something different. It can be action-packed or it can be politically focused or it can, you can put a dark horror in there. However, I have a concern. And that's Simon Kinberg. Now, I'm not going to jump to Simon Kinberg's defense because I've, I've not seen Dark Phoenix and I think his handling of, of the X-Men uh, was poor, to say the least. However, from my my people in the know, Simon Kinberg is one of those writers in, in Hollywood who is really highly respected and uh, is kind of a go-to guy for rewrites and that sort of thing. So maybe the X-Men is not what we should judge him on. I, I did like Mr. and Mrs. Smith, which was his first film where he wrote while still being a film student. So I'm interested to see what he can do. And, and I'd like to go back and see a remake of the original 70s version. Well, it was it was glitzy and it was fun. It was clearly a Star Wars ripoff. Uh, and I'd like to see the Egyptian analogies that were all part of that. Interestingly, I've also heard rumours that Sam Esmail, who's the showrunner of Mr. Robot, is also yeah. developing a new version of the series for television so um we, are we going to get two contrasting battlestar galacticas if we we do get any at all or are we going to get them in this in the shared universe who knows at this stage interesting smoking the bandits is getting remade for tv i think it's a good place for it because i think and we've talked about this many many times which is it's a baby boomers series it's a it's a series that aging executives will think oh my goodness here's the time to bring it back and anyone under the age of 30 is going to go, what the heck is a smoking? And even more so, what's a bandit? So uh, I think TV is where it could work. There was, of course, and we, we refer back to Glenn A. Larson, a inspired, shall we put it? Because he always did that. He always took big movies and made TV versions of them. Yeah. Called BJ and the Bear, about a man and his monkey. I remember BJ and the Bear. Yeah. Which I think now is illegal in many states. <laughs> no, that's BJ the Bear. Oh, okay. <laughs> Uh, yeah, David, David Gordon Green is developing the show and will direct the pilot episode uh, with Brian Sides co-creating it with him. And I mean, for those who don't know what Smoking the Bandit is, Smoking the Bandit was a film outing directed by Hal Needham, who was known for stunt choreography. And he was one of the top stuntmen in the industry in the 70s, who buddied up with Burt Reynolds, who he'd worked with on a few films in order to use the charisma of Burt Reynolds 
and get a load of car chases and stunts and crashes and string them together with a very loose story about running running illegal alcohol across state lines. Moonshine in there, boy. Yep. I think you're fine. And it's it's fun. I mean, if you've never seen the Bandit films, the first two films are definitely worth seeing because they're the two that have Burt Reynolds in them. They're and very, very, very silly, but they're very enjoyable at the same time. They're a regular revisit for me. I go back to them at least once a year. I'd still thoroughly enjoy them. Yeah, stupidly entertaining is the best way. They did in, they did introduce the stupidly entertaining genre, and there's there's nothing intelligent working at work in them, but, <laughs> but you don't mind. And he, and they they sail through down to Burt Reynolds's charisma. Definitely. So I'm 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 interested to see where they go. I'm interested to see how they cast um, the character of the bandits because oh, that's, that's going to be the key. That's going to be the key thing. You've got to have someone with that screen presence and charisma. I got asked on a radio program a few few weeks ago uh, if I was to bring back a series, what would I bring back? The series from the 70s, and who would I cast? And I went with the Rockford Files. Now, everybody went, oh, you can't do the Rockford Files without um, James Garner because it was all about him. It was all about his uh, his charisma. And, and they tried to do a pilot, which failed a few years back. But I thought the Rockford Files with Luke Wilson, brother of Owen. Yeah, I could see that. Yeah, yeah. And when I you say it like that, that, it kind of works. That that works. Uh, from smoking the bandits with car crashes to a franchise which is a car crash, and that's Fast and Furious. <laughs> so we did that. Uh, Justin Lin, who helmed the third, fourth, fifth, and sixth films, is finishing up the ninth film right now, and is in talks to stick around for. And you'll like this news, the final two films. As you know, I have only seen one of the Fast and Furious films, and I only I only saw the offshoot film. And it was okay. The the franchise started off as being point break with cars. It then got very, very silly as it went on, and now it's so daft that they're going to be going into space. Uh, but they've confirmed that the eleventh film will be the last one, according right. to Universal. The 10 and 11 are going to be filmed as one film and then split down the middle. Right. So it's going to be one lo- one large story of family and cars. There are, however, for those people who will be disappointed when the last of these films comes out, plans for multiple spin-off movies and TV shows. Well, there's an animated <laughs> so, TV show, isn't there? That's just, that's just come out yeah, which is, yeah, that, that hit Netflix last month. Yeah. I avoided that one as well. <laughs> I thought you would do somehow. <laughs> so my question to you, is the Fast and the Furious uh, series the modern equivalent of Smokey and the Bandit? You don't have to answer now. I'll just leave it with you. Yeah, you can leave that. <laughs> I'll leave it as well, thanks. <laughs> have you seen uh, across the interweb the pictures of Tom Holland as Nathan Drake? Yeah, um, Tom Holland, who's notorious for accidentally leaking things. Has uh, has accidentally Instagram leaked a photo of him in full costume, and you know what? I think he looks okay, is it? I do. I mean, it clearly is a lot younger than the the character in the game. Yeah, they're, they're doing kind of an origin story, aren't they? Yeah, and that's what people weren't getting when they were like, "Why are they casting young?" It's like, well, they're casting young, so they don't have to recast it in three years' time. Yeah, and he looks great. It just looks like it looks like the cover of one of the um, one of the game boxes, to be honest. Yeah, I think he, because I wasn't sold on him in the casting. I was like, I'm not not sure, not sure. Let's see. And seeing that first shot, it's like, okay, you've sold me now. I'm interested. So I'm now keeping a lookout for other things. Uh, on the subject of Tom Holland, early filming has begun on Spider-Man 3. 
which will no doubt have home in the title and will probably be home, home again. I like to be here when I can. I don't know. There's no place like home. Or Homer, Sim- Homer Simpson's big day out. I don't know. There's been a lot of rumours going around that Andrew Garfield being cast, but I've not seen anything definitive on that. So they're going to do the Spider-Verse, aren't they, basically? Yeah, uh, th- there's loads of rumours and speculation, but nothing actually, nothing's confirmed or denied at this point in time. But I guess within the next few weeks, we'll start to get some confirmation as inevitably things will leak from set. Um, especially if Tom Holland's involved. Of course, things are going to leak from set. Signage in New York with the film's working title, Serenity Now, have been snapped by residents there. At the same time, filming on Shang-Chi has now wrapped. Okay. Hopefully we'll get a trailer soon. So that is, to quote a a great director, in the can, it's done, it's finished. And uh, meanwhile, Chris Hemsworth has confirmed that Thor is set to start filming again in January in Sydney. Taika Waititi is currently putting the finishing touches on the script. And that's Thor, Love and Thunder. Spinning off from Marvel News, let's uh, talk about Scarlett Johansson. Okay. Who's going to star in a film called Bride, which is a sci-fi thriller revamp of Bride of Frankenstein. Is this for Bloomhouse by any chance with their new version of the uh, Universal Horror Movie? Uh, yeah, this is a Bloom production. And we say Bloom House, but I only discovered from actually seeing Jason Bloom in an interview that it's actually Blum. But we, we're so used to calling it Bloom House, we're not going to call it Blum House. We're not going to change. No, we're, we're, we're set in our ways and we, we're stubborn. But yeah, it's going to be a re- revamp of Bride of Frankenstein brought up to a contemporary setting. She's going to be a, wo- per- a woman creator to be the perfect wife who rejects her creator and flees her confined existence into a world that sees her as a monster. So we're in typical... We're in the same kind of territory as The Invisible Man, where they're taking the basic concept but doing something unique with it. Because when it was going to be the universal dark universe, uh, it was Angelina Jolie who was connected to The Bride, and it was much more a a remake of The Bride of Frankenstein, from yeah. what I've heard. Yeah, uh, they were going for the classic approach and then just melding them all together, whereas the Blumhouse approach... See, I actually said Blumhouse. Uh, the, the Blumhouse approach is to re- redesign them Make them, make them their own film, and make them fit into today's society and reflect attitudes and messages of today's society. And we've still got, of course, Ryan Gosling in the Blumhouse uh, Wolfman movie, haven't we? To wait for we have indeed. So it's it's exciting time for fans of um, low budget horror that is delivered quite well. On the subject of vampires, as we spoke about the Universal monsters, well, horror. I can see where you did. That was a good segue. If you, I think, what we should do. Let's do. Uh, let's introduce a drinking game based on the amount of segues we can get in. Oh man, I'll be drunk by the end of the show. <laughs> <laughs> so Netflix and Jamie Fox, who recently paired up for Project Power, um, are going to pair up again for the vampire thriller Day Shift. Okay. He's going to be playing a hardworking blue collar guy who wants to provide for his eight year old daughter. However, his mundane job is actually a cover for his real job as a vampire hunter. J.J. Perry, who's the stunt coordinator on films such as John Wick and Fate of the Furious, is going to helm with uh, Chad Stileski and Jason Spitz producing. So it's in safe hands for the action-packed approach. Cool. And Jamie Foxx, you know, Project Power wasn't a great film, but he's shone in it. I'm not, I'm not seeing it. Should I watch it? I, I, think you should, I think you might get something from it. I got enough from it to make it not a wasted experience. Okay. It's nothing that you think, oh, I want to see a sequel to it, but it's one that you go, okay, okay, I get it. So, yeah, so that's another Jamie Foxx outing for Netflix. So my segue from that, take a drink, uh, David Leach, who has also directed and worked on the John Wick films, has a new film coming out uh, called Bullet Train, 
starring uh, Brad Pitt as an assassin, and just joined that cast is Aaron Taylor Johnson. Oh, who looked buff and unrecognisable in Tenet. He didn't, I didn't recognise him, to be honest. I, I was kind of spent most of the film trying to work it out. When, when the end credits came up and his name popped up, I was like, oh, wow, <laughs> how different he is. Uh, isn't this uh, based on a Japanese novel? Yeah, uh, Maria Beetle. Uh, and one of the film's exact plot has yet to be uh, fully revealed. The story sees five assassins finding themselves on a fast-moving bullet train from Tokyo. With only a few stops in between, they discover their missions are linked to one another. He plays a character called Tangerine, which I don't know if that means anything, but, you know, it could be very, very important to the plot as we unpeel the rest of the story. See what I did there? See what he did there? Yeah. So we, the other drinking game is that every time the Lee does a bad pun, you have to take a <laughs> shot. <laughs> yeah, and send a postcard. Send in your Instagram pictures. So this has been all over the press over the weekend, and I've heard from my man in the know that it is in fact false. But Andy, explain more. So Apple and Netflix, according to rumours this week, and some news re news report sites have actually made this out as though it was fact, were had an option to buy No Time to Die for around $600 million, but the cost was seen as too high. Where this rumour came from, no one can quite pinpoint, but MGM have gone on record to refute the rumour, saying that they've moved it to retain the cinematic experience. They say there's absolutely no truth to it. They haven't been shipping it around. They don't want it to go to streaming. And yeah, it's nonsense. This is an example of how news, you should never trust what news sites say straight out. Trust us instead. Some sites out there are selling this as though it's new news, as though it's actually happening. And this is one thing that we keep saying is that, you know, we're only touching on this just to warn people that don't listen to everything because we pondered whether to include this because we don't like to talk on speculation and nonsense. But I think with something like this, it's important to say that some news sites are clearly taking advantage of the uncertainty of the industry at the moment to generate traffic with clickbait. And this is pure clickbait. I mean, admittedly, if it was going to one of the streaming services of Apple or Netflix, on the plus side, it would get a cinema release because they're the only ones who seem to be releasing things at the cinema at the moment. But it's it's not true. So if you see any nonsense like that, ignore it until you can actually get some quotes from people. And finally, here's a story I didn't get in my uh, movie gossip bingo. Uh, <laughs> no one saw this coming. Ben Wheatley. We talked about him last week with his new version of Rebecca has yep. apparently been signed to direct the follow-up to The Meg, at this point known as The Meg 2. Yeah, I, I read this, and is this an example of Wheatley, you know, really stretching out a bit? Because, yeah, Rebecca is so far removed from his normal things. Uh, he's also got the Tomb Raider film in the pipeline, and now he's doing, well, the, the, the follow-up to The Meg 2, which we're going to assume is going to be based on the second book or the third book in the series. Now, I've not read the books. Have you? No, I've got a pal who really likes them and, and, and was talking about them for years because they were they were optioned as soon as they came out. So they were always on the list of uh, uh, of a potential franchise. But this is just one I never saw coming. And you're right, is Ben Wheatley really trying to stretch himself? Because apparently you said you'd reported that there was a, a he managed to shoot a small scale Ben Wheatley-esque film after it. Yeah, which we still don't know any details of. And I imagine that we'll see land straight to a streaming service at some point down the line. But yeah, is he stretching his abilities a bit? Is he doing something different? I know from seeing some comments from people online who have read the books that a couple of people have commented 
that there's elements in the second book that they can kind of see where Ben Wheatley would fit as a director. So that makes me intrigued because the Meg, the Meg was okay. Yeah, I mean, for those who didn't see it, it was 2018. Mega giant shark thriller starred uh, uh, the state himself, Jason Statham, who went up against this massive, massive... uh, uh, A megalodon. Prehistoric megalodon. Uh, but it, you know, it did really well. It did. Uh, it turned in five and thirty million worldwide. So clearly, there was always, always going to be a, a sequel in the works. So that's uh, that's Ben Wheatley, who's definitely rising in stature and getting a lot of projects lined up. And that's it for what we call the news. If you're enjoying this episode of the Film File, then please hit the subscribe button. And please leave a review because, well, why not? We're nice people. I'm sure you are too. If you want to know more about The Film File, well, you can follow us on Twitter. At Film File UK. And, and follow us on Instagram. We've got a new Instagram page and we want to do a lot with that. So uh, find us on Instagram too, also at Film File UK. And I just want to point out what Andy does on a Sunday night because it's so hugely entertaining. Andy, just quickly. <laughs> I always thought to switch the camera off. Ah, well, no, you left it on last <laughs> night and I was shocked. Uh, especially as I had the entire family watching. So tell us a little about on the Film File page on Twitter, MTOS. That's hashtag MTOS. That's a movie talk on Sunday, hashtag MTOS, which is a different topic every week with 10 questions, one every 10 minutes from 8 p.m. British time. The question goes out and people respond. And then we discuss around people's answers in a very respectful way. No one's got a right or wrong answer because it's all about opinions on films. And we'll ask things like, this week's one was all about family-friendly fright films. And so we asked things like, what is your favourite animated horror film that kids could watch? And we got answers like Paranorman, Frank and Weenie, Monster House, Coraline, Vincent, Toy Story of Terror, Coco, Watership Down. We also asked live-action horror films for kids. Goosebumps, Gremlins, Witches, Arachnophobia, Jaws. And whilst some of those films I have no love for, it was like, yeah, that's a good answer. I can see where you're coming. And that's how we approach it. MTOS, Movie Talk on Sunday. We talk about directors, film genres, even just your experience of watching films. We've done quite a few topics all around the experience of how you like to watch films. It's a fun chat with a great community that are built up around it. And if you if you love film in any way, just keep a lookout. Just do a search on Twitter for the hashtag MTOS. You'll be able to see what kind of discussions we have around it each week. And round about every Tuesday and Wednesday each week is when I announce what the next week's topics is going to be. So keep a lookout and join in. It's, it's fun, fun, literally, because you can drop in at any point. You don't have to sit by your phone or your computer during Sunday night. I, I got up this morning and, and threw my 10 cents worth in. It's, it's just really, really fun. And it's, as you said, it's great to be part of that that bigger film geek community. So then again, you can find us on all your favorite podcast services. Uh, find us on Instagram and find us on Twitter and become part of a, you know, have your own draw, have your own film file draw. We'll keep one aside for you. Okay, for the last few weeks, uh, during especially during lockdown, Andy has been tasked with going back into the film library of, of forgotten films. Well, forgotten because he never got a chance to see them in the first place. <laughs> Sometimes we ask why. Sometimes we just shake our head in despondency. But I tasked Andy with going back to the year 1994 to talk about Robert Redford's American drama, Quiz Show. Stemple is an underdog. People root for that. Sure, wasn't Herbie terrific? Have you seen the ratings? I'd like you to meet next week's challenger, Charles Van Doren. Oh. 
How much do they pay instructors up at Columbia? $86 a week. Do you have any idea how much Bozo the Clown makes? Gotta be James J. Braddock. Correct, you have 21! Is this guy a natural or what? He's a natural. <laughs> $20,000. What if we would ask you questions that you know? Well, I think I'd really rather try to beat him honestly. Just an idea. Was that part of the test? <laughs> yes, I know his name. Halleck, General H.W. Halleck. You have 21! I'm constantly amazed at the facts these guys have at their fingertips. It's been nine weeks now. And you've won how much? $93,000. Sir, I smell something. That little box in your living room is plugged into something crooked. You lose when I tell you to lose. Now I'm supposed to take a dive? You know, you got these crackpots coming out of the woodwork. You don't have a shred of concrete evidence. Young man, I am the president of the National Broadcasting Company. I have you. And why are you the one that's sweating? Let him out, boys. Charles Van Dorn hails from one of the most prominent intellectual families in this country. Dick's on a witch hunt. He thinks 21 is rigged. Is it? It starred John Turturro, Rob Morrow, Ralph Fiennes, and the film chronicles the 21 quiz show scandals of the 1950s that was happening, that happened in the US. The fall and rise of popular contestant Charles Van Doren after the fixed loss of Herb Stemple and the congressional investigator Richard Goodwin's subsequent probe. As with most of these films, this is a film that I, I saw upon uh, release and thought it was a masterful film, incredibly well directed by Robert Redford, who you forget is not just a great actor, but is in fact a, a fantastic director too. But that's enough of me. Andy, tell me what you thought to Quiz Show. Uh, whilst the film, as you expect with any of these biopics or lookbacks on events of yesteryear, takes some artistic liberties with the story. I mean, for example, with this one, the question that Herb loses on in the film he didn't actually lose on that week's episode. He actually managed to pull back and finish on 21 points. And then they went head to head the following week. And that's when he went out. But it made for a good storytelling on the screen. But the general story is pretty much spot on. And it's engaging and relevant today as when the scandal occurred and when the film was made four decades after the scandal occurred. I was engaged with this film from the start. And it's probably helped by a cast of really good names who don't try to steal scenes. It's a cast who are serving the story. No actor takes precedence over the story and each one just plays the role that they're given and isn't pushed to steal in the scenes because Redford directs beautifully. He utilises every actor perfectly throughout to just really structure an intriguing true life story. I, I've got a lot of love for this film now. Um, I really enjoyed watching it i enjoyed seeing everything about it and then as i tend to do when i find that i like something i then research the true story behind it so this was a huge scandal in the very early days of television so i probably didn't give you enough detail if you've not seen the film so in 1958 there was a questions and answers to be used on the latest broadcast of nbc's incredibly popular quiz show 21 the questions were transported from a secure bank vault in the studio. In the film, the evening's main attraction is Queen's resident Herb Stemple, played fantastically by John Turturro, who's the reigning champion, who correctly answers question after question. However, both the network and the program's corporate sponsors uh, find that Stemple's approval ratings are, are beginning, to, uh, beginning to level out, meaning that the show could benefit from new talent. So the producers bring in 
Columbia University instructor Charles Van Doren, played fantastically by Ray Fiennes. And this was his sort of breakthrough role. He was still very unknown in, in, in the US and, and more so in the, still known in the UK. But this is the film that broke him. He's the son of a prominent uh, literary family. He visits the office for an audition. The producers realize that they found their ideal challenger for Stemple. They offer to ask him the same questions during the show, which Van Doren correctly answered during his audition. First, he refuses. And this is what the film's about. But when he comes within the reach of, of the game winning 21 points on the show, he's asked one question from his audition. And the moral core of this film is he gives the correct answer. Stemple deliberately misses an, an easy question and loses, having been promised a future in television. And so it goes. So week after week, Van Doren's winning streak makes him a national celebrity. But he starts to buckle under the pressure. It's a, it's a fantastic film, as you said, that, that's still relevant today. We had uh, a, a couple of years back, How to Be a Millionaire movie about cheating on Ingram time. scandal. Yeah, which which, uh, which, great. which itself had a, behind, a, it had a TV drama earlier this year that looked at that. And in that, you got to see the behind-the-scenes manipulations that they do within the production. They they cherry-pick people to go on the show based on profiles of them. And, yeah, it, there's still that manipulation going on. We've even had in it's 2008 the telephone phone-in competition scandal yeah. in the UK. And even way back in the 70s, 21, which was running in the UK on its own version, had a scandal, which led to game shows in the UK for a couple of decades not being allowed to give away more than £1,000, which is why British game shows got this whole reputation of being cheap. It was only once it got to a $64,000 question that they were allowed to then start to take it to bigger amounts, and now we're allowed to do like millionaire, etc., etc. But for a few decades, the British scandals had pushed the government to put legislation in place. And what's great about Quiz Show as a film is that all of that that I've just said was what was happening back then in the 50s. And this film covers it. It's the promoters, the sponsors want to get their money, so they need the viewing figures to be high. If an unpopular contestant keeps winning, the viewing figures are going to go down. So in order to pay for the production, they need to find a way to get them off the show. The producers look at it as just entertainment. So they see it as nothing more than just get actors in to act it. And it does create that whole, well, are they, are they kind of right in that it's just entertainment? Should we be watching quiz shows expecting it to be truthful or should we be watching it just for the joy and entertainment? And even though these things are scandals, it, it, the films cleverly doesn't really say whether it was right or wrong in what it did, because everyone who took part in this scandal was complicit in it to some degree. They all agreed to accept those questions. They all agreed to go along with it. And the only time, the only time when it, turned back on them when Herb Stemple turned away from them is when he was told to remove and then he didn't get any future TV appearances and then he kicked up a stink but he was happy to go along with it from day one it's a really clever film it really is clever, clever. I'll tell you what, what, what makes it very interesting is because though Robert Redford has some huge questions in it about, about the morals and social political aspects of the story he never forgets to create an, a, an entertaining well acted film at the heart of it is 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 the superb performances. I mean, as we said, Fanes was was just really getting into his swing, and they say this is the yeah. film that really broke him in America. But let's not forget, I think John Turturro, who is who's exceptional because he's so he's so uncharismatic as Herbie Stemple. Um, yeah. Stemple was a, a 
was the complete antithesis of, of uh, someone like um, the Van Doren uh, uh, character. And if this film had been made sort of 20 years earlier, you could definitely see Redford play that role, play the role of, yeah. of Van Doren, because it is, it, is, it is the most charismatic out of it. It's, it's fantastically, not only well-crafted film and beautifully acted, it's just, it's, it, it's, it's, it's engaging in almost in the way that um, a thriller is as it builds towards its ending. Really good film. Uh, it, it was nominated for multiple awards. Yeah, it did very badly in the box office. I think it was, we'd reached that point in, in films where, in film history where, um, you know, not necessarily great films were being seen by audiences. Yeah, it, it got nominated but didn't win any. But the nominations included Best Director and Best Picture, uh, with Redford obviously up for that. Supporting actor Paul Schofield, who we've not mentioned. And, and I think probably his best performance is A Man for All Seasons as well. And it also got best uh, got nominated for Best Adapted Screenplay. So it, I think it was deserving of each of those. I think it possibly should have picked Best Picture. Looking at the category for Best Picture that year, I think that it was a better film than Forrest Gump. I agree. Which won the award there. I mean, it was up against Shawshank Redemption, though, so I think Shawshank probably should have won, really. But um, I think it, it was a very close call, and I think Quiz Show should have maybe got it. If you've not had a chance to see Quiz Show, please spend a little bit of time, check it out, find it. It's well worth it. You, you will thank us for it. Not only a film with, uh, say, the top top tier uh, great cast, but there's also great supporting roles from amongst others, Martin Scorsese. Okay, so Andy, for next week, um, so it's a tough choice because all the all the real classics from that year you've seen, so trying to find something that you've not seen has proven to be difficult. And out of the list, and there are some some good contenders as far as film goes, but for something to entertain you, I'm going to have to go for 1978. I'm going to have to go for Richard Dreyfuss in The Goodbye Girl. And, and it's going to be interesting because it's not a film that I particularly love. So surprise me. Surprise me with Goodbye Girl for next week. Okay. I shall surprise you. Okay. <laughs> So if um, you've not had the chance to go back into the darkened pleasure palace that is a cinema, then Andy and I have. So sometimes together. We've got two films for you this week. Uh, one is Pixie and the other one you can find on your favourite streaming channel or Amazon Prime, as we like to call it. And can't help but talk probably about the most talked about film of the last week. And that is Borrowed Subsequent Movie Film. Can you move a bit more forward? Yes. No, not that way. Now the camera can't see. What? Animal boy. No, it's not me. All right, come down. Why I do this? This is to promote your movie. Very nice. Hot no, no, please don't do that. Some silly billy put green pepper on floors. No, that's meant to be there. Killing some of the virus. You can't see the virus. No, it's still there. Point up. Yeah. But look at the camera as you're doing it. Yep, secretly, Sasha Baron Cohen over the year has been making a new Borat film. The man who, uh, I think more than anything else, deserves credit for staying alive during the <laughs> making of this film. So if you don't know the plot, after bringing shame on his nation, uh, journalist uh, Borat is tasked with selling off his daughter, Tuta, to Vice President Mike Pence. And along the way, the father and daughter learn about feminism, politics, and about a deadly virus that may have been spread by Gypsy Tears. So there's been a lot of talk about uh, this this new Borat film, the fact that it was made secretly, the fact that uh, it's come out in time, and in, in the end of the film actually says, please vote, uh, uh, with, its, with its incredible timing, 
a, a film that follows on from 14 years where now Borat has become a household name and a household impression. Has uh, Sacha Baron Cohen, in your opinion, Andy, managed to pull it off? I think that he is. I mean, uh, you say that this has been made in secret over the past year. You remember that earlier this year when we reported on Sacha Baron Cohen popping up at a rally as a country and western singer, getting the crowds to chant along with right-wing nonsense. And we speculated then that, was this a stunt for a film that he's making? Turns out it was, because that is actually within this film. Yeah. It's been, like you say, it's been 14 years since the first film in which he was shining a spotlight on the racism and intolerance as well as hypocrisy of the US system and culture, which for me was best highlighted by how the New Yorkers all wanted to threaten him with violence when he was trying to hug them or introduce himself on the subway. Yet when they stopped off in a rough area in the first film, to speak with a, a group of black youths. He found them welcoming and happy to share fashion tips, etc., to make him cooler. You know, we would hope that after that spotlight was shone, that the US would have progressed after that and learned from its mistakes. But as we all know, it hasn't, and we're just approaching an election. So Borat was really, really needed at this point in time. And I think he's tapped perfectly into the status quo that we're living in. Now, I, I mentioned that, that since that 14 years, that, that, that Borat has become an icon. Uh, as I said, it's, it's one of those impressions that, that your kids do, even though they've not seen the film. Yeah. So the concept had to be reworked. And the film acknowledges that, that Borat is somewhat of a celebrity. Uh, so it's hard to do the pranks that he did the first time round because so many people are in the jokes. And what surprised me on this film is, uh, is not the fact that he manages to, to adapt these new identities. is that he still could go around as Borat and people would rec not recognise him. There's a, a scene in a in a bakery, for instance, which, as a lot of this film does, makes you cringe. So, yeah. as we said, Borat spent time in intervening years in a, in a hard labour camp because he brought shame on his country. He, he adopts a, a series of disguises for the sequel uh, and leaving a lot of the pranks this time to his daughter or non-male son, as he puts it, in the character <laughs> of Tutor, played amazingly. And, and she just is just what a discovery. Uh, newcomer Bulgarian actress Maria Bakalava, who manages to get into some of the things that the borrower would have done before, and also provides what I think, and I think you're going to agree, is um, the heart of the film, their relationship. Yeah, she starts out as the unknown feral daughter that he had that was kept in a shed because, you know, as we know from the first film, women are just treated like pets within um, his fake Kazakhstan community. Over the course of the film, it's as he needs to use her as the gift of Pence. He needs to make her less feral and more like a normal girl in American society. And so she's used for the stunts, getting makeovers, learning how to act in polite society. There's a marvellous father-daughter dance that they do that I, I, I ruptured with laughter at. I thought that it just pushed the boundaries, just that, that level enough, but not too far. And over the film, she learns her own identity. And in doing that, Borat starts to recognise her identity. And it creates a good father-daughter relationship through the film that brings genuine like moments that you, you want you want to just like weep or you have a lump rising in your throat. Marvellously done. And like you say, she's an absolute gem in the role. She's amazing. She, she is, is fantastic. She she plays from the feral all the way through to how she is at the end perfectly and you can't have missed the news report on one of the scenes with rudy giuliani yes and how, how that play, how that plays out 
as much as he's trying to deny it played out that way, look, when you watch the film, you will see all the build-up to those closing moments of that scene, and you will see exactly, exactly what character he was. It's, it's interesting. If, if that scene had been in the movie 14 years ago, then we would have seen the ending of somebody's political career. But we live, yeah. in, we live in very different days. Uh, which it, which is the film cleverly shines shines a, a light on, and we live in this uh, in an America that isn't shocked anymore by what its uh, um, what its overlords are, are doing, uh, and I think that's something that um, the film has to fight against. But what it does, as it did in the first film, quite well, is it it looks at the ridiculous crudeness of of, of a society, it brings out the broken mirror to shine back on them. Uh, whether that's that's people who are clearly uneducated to those who are overly educated, there are moments in this film which which make you laugh, make you make you laugh out loud. The other times which make you just it makes your pulse quicken because you think, oh my god, he, he's, he's going to be killed. Uh, apparently, <laughs> the story is that he had to wear a, a bulletproof vest uh, on on some of the scenes that he recorded. He's a very brave entertainer. Um, he doesn't he doesn't forget that his film needs a plot and needs heart to it and, and and that's something that's proved i think the film suffers a little bit by too much padding there are scenes the haircut scene for instance which which just felt like padding didn't feel necessary it didn't make me laugh out loud as much as the first film but maybe i'm looking at the back at the first film with sort of rose tinted glasses but you know it, it it still brings out that ugly side of not just america but a society in general and the world that we're living with the only, the only problem that you've got is that the message that this film is sending on the run-up to this election in the States, which it's shining a spotlight on everything that people need to be voting against, this message won't get through to the people that it mostly needs to get through to. The people who have had the spotlight shone on them to make them go, oh, I recognise a bit of myself in that. I maybe shouldn't be that kind of person. They won't see this because their great and glorious leader will tell them it's fake news and it's nonsense and they shouldn't watch it and it's garbage, left-wing propaganda, yada, yada, yada. And they're missing the point that if it was left-wing propaganda, everything that all the people who were caught out in it did would have had to have been completely and utterly staged and scripted. But no, these people show themselves up. He just gives them the spotlight to stand in whilst they bleat about how proud they are of their attitudes and natures. This is yeah. what makes Borat so relevant even today. We still live in a world that you look around and you wonder whether we are living in a parody anyway. So you need a parody character to come along and show how ridiculous reality is compared to comedy. I, I, I couldn't agree. As I said, I think uh, all plaudits to Sasha Baron Cohen because he, I think he's fearless. Uh, I'm always interested to see what he does next. But uh, as you said, it's unlikely at any stage to tip the electoral scales in any way but the fact that he, he ends it with the card that says uh, um, no, please vote, it just raises the broken mirror to society that, that you think should know better and, and that way I can only say very nice It's on Amazon now, get it streamed So the other film we want to talk about is the fact that Andy and I did make it into a darkened theatre, a pleasure palace for want of a better term, to bring you our review of Pixie I'm going to tell you a little bedtime story. How would you like that? The fella you ran into was going to kill me. Sir. Is he dead? No, he's having a f***ing 
Waking up! Yes, he's dead! What's in the bag? I'm guessing you fellas aren't used to being in the hot water you find yourselves in currently, is that correct? One deal. It's way too big for you, trust me. Oh, sorry, Mr. Pablo Escobar. Welcome to Sligo! I figure you got a corpse in the back of your car and you're looking to skip town quick, am I right? I should probably let you know up front that I'm partial to adventure. You're saying it's priests that are after us. These guns aren't gonna shoot themselves. Yeah. Deadly gangster priests, yeah? Stars uh, Olivia Cook, Alec Baldwin, Ben Hardy, the great Colm Meany, and Pixie is a story of the daughter of a small town Irish gangster, Colm Meany, in the West Island town of Sligo, looking to start a new life by literally any means necessary. Unfortunately, a dead body lands on her doorstep and she embarks on a road trip with a couple of strangers she's met, played by Ben Hardy and Daryl McCormick, but brings her into, into the firing line of gangster priest, played by Alec Baldwin. So, Andy, it's an ensemble cast, colourful characters, criminal undertones, uh, that kind of sardonic gangster dialogue, but in a rural Irish setting. It's a bit of a road trip. What did you think to Pixie? I turned around to you as soon as we finished watching this and just said, lock, stock and two jars of porter. Because this film, for me, felt so much like those early Guy Ritchie films, which had similar kind of themes. Criminal gangs up against each other, drug deals gone wrong and someone stumbling upon some drugs to offload. It played very similar to Lock, Stock and Snatch, and I, I, I enjoyed it. I found myself caught up in the characters. I found that even though none of the characters are actually nice people, everyone's out for themselves in one way or another. You still latch on to the, the, the core pairing of the two guys who stumble upon the load of drugs, uh, Ben Hardy as Frank, and also the other character was Gareth, and then Pixie enters their lives. And Olivia Cook is magnificent in this film. She is so charismatic, isn't she? Every time the, the camera's on her, she's, she's so relentlessly charming and lovely. She, she had a plan to escape her Irish life that because of the drug deal going wrong has kind of uh, got in the way of it. And so she offers to help the pair with their predicament of offloading these drugs that she was hoping to actually get the money off in order to disappear. And that's where all the complications start to arise as a hitman is sent out to track them down. Uh, you've got Colmini as her step stepfather Dermot, who is charmingly laid back. He's obviously someone who's moved past all his years of like crime and is trying to just settle into a normal life while still being the father head of the crime syndicate. And he's quite an obsessive about food, which I kind of latched onto. <laughs> um, th there's a great heart between her like character and Colmini's character. There's a real genuine, a genuine bond between them which obviously rubs up his actual son in the film who wants her out the way. There's so much complications in there and there's so much going on. And then you've got Alec Baldwin, like you said, as Father McGrath, who's the leader of the priestly drug dealers. Because if you're going to deal drugs, you might as well make it as priests because they're never going to get stopped and searched. <laughs> uh, it, I, I found it a thoroughly charming, darkly funny and engaging film that didn't outstay its welcome because it's only around about 90 minutes long as well. I'm going to agree with you on all those points. And I think it was a throwback to uh, the kind of late 90s Guy Ritchie uh, gangster boom. And, and everything that I disliked about that, I disliked in this film. What I did like about it is, is all the things you said. I think uh, Olivia Cook was, was fantastic. She was charming. I enjoyed the interplay with her and Ben Hardy and Daryl McCormick. I've seen some reviews which said they, they were uh, uh, insufferable teenagers, which I, I disagree with. They're the characters that are your window into this world and thoroughly enjoyed their relationship. Some fantastic cameos. You, you mentioned Alec Baldwin. 
Dylan Moran appears uh, brilliantly um, and underused as a as an arms and drug dealer, who is deadpan and dry in all the best ways that Dylan Moran is, and could have stayed longer in the film for me. Uh, the the climax slow motion gunfight in a church had that sort of throwback to to being a ridiculous John Woo, meaning if you're seeing a nun with a shotgun, you know you're kind of in for it at that stage. Yeah, uh, I did find it a little bit immature i liked where it went uh, i liked watching those three characters until the end when there's a, a a really last minute little twist which made the whole film for me sort of uh, uh turn in on itself and what i thought i was watching kind of uh, uh threw me out of it because i thought well this one particular character i'm not going to say who has, has just has just deleted everything that that came beforehand and it was an ending for me being quite mean spirited in a way that I thought was unnecessary. It was it was a, an interesting gag, but it, it kind of at that point made me think the film I've watched ultimately didn't go anywhere uh, and made it very derivative. And, and the more I thought about it and I enjoyed it while I was watching it, but the more I thought about it, the more I, I was sort of felt let down by it. For the 90 minutes during the viewing, I had a good time. It's when I when I gave it some thought later, and 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 that's when I kind of it, the the tone of it and the faults with it came back to sort of haunt me on it. I can kind of see where you're coming from with that, even though I don't necessarily agree. And it's hard to talk about it without doing spoilers, yeah, so I'm yeah. not going to explain my opposite points because I'd need to go into spoiler territory in order to um, point out how I saw it. But you know, I I, I can kind of see it. With me, the more that I think about it. I'm looking forward to watching this again at some point. Okay. I I, I enjoyed it and I want to I want to revisit it and I want to, you know, pay attention to a few of the details a bit more. But as it was as it stands, it's a film that you can just sit casually enjoy everything that's going on in front of you. If you like dark comedy, you like dark comic crime dramas and you like a good Irish cast and who doesn't like a good Irish cast even if it's an Alec Baldwin with a really bad Irish accent. <laughs> Irish cast. Yeah, it wasn't great. It's it's a fun little film. And it's a it's a worthy diversion to the cinema at this point in time. I'll give you that. I'll give you that. As I say, I didn't hate it. Just the more I sort of thought about it later, the kind of more disappointed I became in it. But for the 90 minutes I was sat in the cinema with you watching it, you know, I had a good time watching it. Also reviewing this week. So there's a couple of things that are in the cinema and also gone straight to two streaming services this week that I just want to touch on that I've had a chance to see. So for the families this week, you've got Over the Moon. Netflix's latest animated offering, which is a charmingly engaging musical adventure with a very Disney-esque feel, albeit one that doesn't shy away from a cinema release. It's directed by Glenn Keane, who's an ex-Disney animator who worked on a lot of the output of the 80s and 90s, and it tells of Fei-Fei, a 14-year-old girl who lost her mother a few years earlier, and who believes in the myth of Shang-Yi, a mythical moon goddess who seeks her true love, Hoi-Yi. When a potential stepmother enters her life, along with an eight-year-old boy who is excited to have a big sister, Fei-Fei feels betrayed at the memory of her mother, and so sets about to prove the stories her mother told her about true love and the moon goddess were true. And thus, she builds a rocket ship and sets off to the moon. This is a charming film. The animation is beautiful. It's extremely colourful. The songs in it, and there's a lot of them, are generally good, but there's a couple of standout songs within it that whilst not being as much of an earworm as things like Let It Go, will stick in your head afterwards. And I won't be surprised if one of them in particular gets an Oscar nod at some point. There's a lot better animated movies out there. Yes, there are. 
But this is an example of how Netflix are building a reliable reputation in film of all genres. And it is a great family adventure film to pass the time. I recommend it. If you can see this on the big screen, it does look beautiful on the big screen. So for Cinema Near You is showing over the moon. Treat your kids this half term. Get them out there. Sit them down and watch it. If you still don't feel comfortable to go to a cinema, don't worry. It's on Netflix. Uh, Did you see over Christmas uh, Netflix really first big animated film, Klaus? Klaus, Klaus. I didn't. And I want to get around to watching it, but I feel I need to wait until Christmas. It's really, really lovely. And it sort of walks the thin line between digital animation and, and traditional hand-drawn animation. I, I thought it was a fantastic film. Uh, it was it was nominated, if, if I remember correctly. So I'm always in, I'm interested to see where yeah. where uh, Netflix are going with their animated films. I mean, this sounds like it's, it's, a, it's a worthy watch. It's definitely a worthy watch. You can tell the element of it, like being an ex-Disney animator who's working on it, because like I say, it's got a very Disney feel to it. It's got the same kind of heart of a Disney feel. And as I said in the setup of it, the message in the film is that there's this stepmother entering their life who's trying to be her friend, but she just sees it as a betrayal of her mother's memory. And that's what sets off the story. And that's the kind of heart that you need in like these animations, something which is about family. It's about accepting change, accepting loss, Brilliant film, and it does leave a few tears in the eyes towards the end of it. Anything else? And also on Sky Movies, or Now TV, and also on the big screen, is The Secret Garden. Which is, this must be the umpteenth remake of that. Hasn't there been, like, there's five big film adaptations to date, and there's been multiple TV series. So that, has the, that begs the question, Andy, are we ready for another remake? Uh, I don't think we were ready for this one, to be honest with you. This film is yet another adaptation of the novel by Francis Hodgson Burnett, which was first published in book form in 1911. And the story is that when Mary Lennox's parents suddenly die, she's sent to live with her uncle Archibald in his remote country estate deep in the Yorkshire Moors. And whilst exploring, she discovers a hidden magical garden. Um, Archibald has a son called Colin, who is bedridden and is said to be unable to move and he's he's very sickly and he's gonna get a hunchback and he's he's never gonna go out and he's a recluse and it's all the the father since the loss of the mother has put all his own insecurities and worries onto his son and not let his son grow up the secret garden is a magical place that can heal anything and so the girl mary is determined to get colin to go into there to help him experience life and joy it's a pretty average adaptation of the tale sadly and whilst it looks great at moments it sadly underuses colin firth who is marvelous as archibald but so woefully underused and unfortunately makes the misstep of making the character of colin the young boy so petulant and annoying that even when he finally enters the garden you just continue to detest the spoiled little brat well that doesn't help the story forward it doesn't help it at all because it's supposed to be how once he enters that that whole new garden world and starts to realise the joy of life and starts to become a better person, he starts to like become different. And it's lost in this because he's just not he's not portrayed very well. It's not a bad film, but there's much better adaptations of Secret Garden through the years. And if you got if I was gonna urge anyone to go and see anything on the big screen this week, it wouldn't be Secret Garden. It would be the aforementioned over the moon. But if you want to watch this, like I say, it's on Sky Movies or Now TV. Entertaining diversion? Eh, barely. What else have we got on streaming platforms over the next week? So over the next week, oh, have we got a treat coming to Now TV this this Friday? Uh, their big release this week is something that we've spoken about multiple times. 
and that's the Invisible Man. Well worth seeing again. I, I really want to see it again. I'm looking forward to re-exploring it. On Amazon on the 30th, uh, Smallfoot, which I didn't get a chance to see, and I really want to see, so I'm looking forward to this. This is the story of Nigo, the friendly Yeti, who lives in a community of Yetis who don't believe that humans exist, and so he goes off to prove that humans exist and then return to his village so he can be a big hero to them. And I love that whole aspect of, like, you know, we, we don't believe that Yetis exist. So we're, they're playing the flip side of that. I'm looking forward to seeing this. On Disney+, Plus. obviously, we've got The Mandalorian is back. And on BritBox, the Hammer House of Horror collection lands on the 29th of October. Now, do you remember the Hammer House of Horror series? I certainly do. I re-watched them all. I managed to pick up a DVD box set a few years back, which had uh, basically season one in. There's some real misfires on it. There's some 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 great episodes, some really creepy episodes. It's a mixed bunch, but but definitely worth watching. Just just the time capsule to that period. Uh, lots of uh, recognizable uh, actors and actresses all all the way through it. Mainly from comedy, which you you find looking back on it. But um, yeah, well worth a watch. Uh, now I rewatched most of these last year when they were on Shudder, but there was right. one in particular that I didn't, and I'm going to subject myself to it this this week when it lands on BritBox, and that's the episode The House That Bled to Death, because this film, tra- this story traumatised me as a child. I was maybe a bit too young when I watched it at age of seven, and I, I, I have lasting psychological impressions of that <laughs> film, and even just thinking about it now is sending my heart into palpitations and I'm breaking out in cold sweat, so I'm going to subject myself to one of my childhood terrors this weekend. And I can't wait. Is it funny that you get you get <laughs> one show in your head that you remember? And I mentioned it on on um, I mentioned it on Twitter last night about Salem's Lot, which I'm desperate to to watch the yeah. David Soul version again, just for that one moment with the kid tapping on the window, which scared me scared me to to hide behind the pillows. Yeah. All right, so Hammer House of Horror. I mean, all the Hammer productions I've got a fondness for, uh, but revisiting this, like you say, it's it's a series of hits and misses. It doesn't always hit the mark, but they're all an intriguing watch. And uh, maybe sit, maybe get your seven-year-old to watch them and traumatise them like I was. By, I, I, think by that's, mother. I think that's a must. <laughs> Have you seen anything popping up on streaming? Well, uh, it's a film I've seen several times before, and I think it's it's one of the most thrilling films that I've ever seen that, that left me sweaty palms, left me, uh, you know, holding my breath. And that's Apollo 13, is hitting Netflix. Ooh. Uh, 1995 uh, Ron Howard film starred Tom Hanks, Bill Paxton, Kevin Bacon, uh, great Ed Harris, and it's the uh, it's the dramatization of uh, the Apollo 13 mission, which w- went drastically wrong, and, and for many thought the the astronauts wouldn't make it back. It's one of those films where you know the ending, and when you walk into it, but it it keeps you on the edge of edge of your seat all the way through. I saw this on the big screen. I've seen it subsequently. Uh, on TV, it's a fantastic film. Um, Ron Howard at, at his best, um, Tom Hanks at his best, and it's just a film about hope and about the endurance of the of the human spirit and how, if by people working together, you you get the result that you wanted. It's it's fantastic, and I will watch it again. Excellent. Yeah, I, I think I might give that a watch as well. It's been a while since I last watched that, and I, I remember being completely gripped by it. So that's the streaming services roundup for this week. Okay. So at this stage of the program where we start to draw to a close, Andy and I have a look back at what we've been reading, watching, enjoying over the last week in a segment we like to call our neat thing. So Andy, have you got a neat thing for us for this week? 
I have, yes. My neat thing this week is uh, now a lot of people have latched onto this game recently and over the past few weeks I have spent so much time having so much fun with either a group of mates or some random folk or a mixture of both and that's the game Among Us which is available on Steam and also available on mobile devices uh, Android and Apple and the good thing about this is the game no, no matter what platform you play it on you can play against people on the other platforms so if you've never heard of Among Us Among Us is a traitor in the midst game where you are the crew of a ship or a colony who are going around completing your tasks, but one of you, two of you, or three of you, depending on what the settings for the game are, is a traitor in the midst who's trying to kill you all. Well, that sounds intriguing. You have to try to either complete all the tasks, like get the green bar completely filled up so that you can win, or track down who the traitor is. And you track down who the traitor is by looking for suspicious activity watching to see how people are acting because the traitors don't have tasks to do but they have to pretend that they can do tasks in order to bluff the way through if you if you stumble upon the corpse of one of the crewmates who's been killed you can call an emergency meeting and that's when the fun starts because that's when the accusations start flying out the idea behind the game is that whilst you're doing your tasks you don't talk there's no communication so even if you've got a voice chat going, you stay silent. And it's only once you're all gathered around the table going, I found a dead body. Where did you find them? Over in engineering. Well, I was on navigation. No, you weren't. I went past navigation. You went there. You lie. You're that's a bit sus. And you start trying to piece together things. It sounds nerve wracking. It's, oh, it, it's hilarious. It's nerve wracking. When someone is desperately trying to bluff the way out of something, but three people are like, no, mate, all three of us saw you. <laughs> you, you, you genuinely break out into stitches when they just go, yeah, fair enough, vote for me. And they'll vote for themselves to kick them out. When you vote to kick someone out, they're kicked out the ship, out the colony, dead. If you've got the traitor sounds very kicked out, then you've won. If not, you've just lost one of one of your crew, crewmates. And once the traitor gets down to there just being two of you left, the traitor's won. So uh -huh. it, it's such... A fun game. The games can last anything from... We had one game which literally lasted about 30 seconds. And we've had games that have lasted like 20 minutes. Where like we're all being very cautious and sticking together in groups. Because if you're in groups, the, the killer's not going to kill one of you. Because once you kill, you've got a countdown timer before you can kill again. So if you kill too close to someone, you've got no chance to get away. What's it called again, Andy? Among Us. You can get it on all mobile devices and also on Steam. Well worth a play. Okay, for my neat thing, I had a, I had a couple of choices. I've gone back to playing uh, Red Dead Redemption 2, which is just a phenomenal game. I, I talked about it when we first started um, start this show. Yeah. It's, it is just purely, purely brilliant. Uh, I'd reached a stage when I'd finished all the main missions and sort of put it aside. And I, I thought I'll dig it out and, and see how far I got and just discovered whole new layers to it. Uh, that I didn't even know were there, little side missions that I had not finished, some surprises which just, just turn up. So Red Dead Redemption. I'm also going to mention a, a quick one. We should have mentioned it in our, our Netflix guide because it's about to turn up on Netflix. But I rewatched Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse the other week uh, and, and just it stayed with me because it's, it's such a clever film. Um, the second yeah. time I'd seen it and I, I, I just adored it. It's visually stunning. It's it's a it's a fantastic take on on the whole Spider Man thing. I think this is what we'll, what we're hearing will play out into into the third Tom Holland Spider film. Uh, it was met with uh, acclaim from from critics who saw it. In fact, so much so that it, it won the best animated feature at the Academy Awards. It's just a fantastic film. It introduces us to to the Miles Morales character. 
Uh, it's beautifully done. The, the depiction of the kingpin in the film is is straight out of the Bill Sinkovich storyline. Uh, an amazing, amazing cast. It's funny. It's witty. It's clever. It's about something. Uh, to some extent, I, I, I think it's better, uh, sacrilege I might know, than the Tom Holland uh, Spider-Man film so far. I just thought it had such weight to it. I think it's a superb film. So I know I've got two neat things, but you know what? This is our show. We can do whatever we want. So my neat things are returning to Red Dead Redemption 2 and Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. And that's it for this week's show. Andy, it's been a delight as ever. I, I couldn't do this show without you because, well, basically, you're the producer on the show. <laughs> that's, that's that's fair enough <laughs> uh, we'll be back next week all being well unless anything traumatic happens and we're taken into tier 4 which is the equivalent of Resident Evil 4 but remember only man and bears are allowed inside cars now. <laughs>